Welcome to Mihinte on Air on 100.5 and 790 News Radio WSGW and online WSGW.com. Now, here is your host, Larry Rodarte. Good evening, good evening, Mihente, and thank you for being with us this evening, this Sunday evening, talking about Hispanic concerns and culture as well as contributions. And today I, I kind of come to you with a heavy heart. We, the community of the Hispanic community, I should say, of Saginaw County has been hit hard in regard to the coronavirus. And I say that because uh, today I was notified that I lost a good friend at the University of Michigan Hospital, who is from Saginaw, and I want to dedicate this show to her, Mary Lou Serrato, uh, who lost that battle but is uh, hopefully at peace and in heaven now with her husband and, and with our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. And I just, I just feel really heavy today, and I feel this way because as people of color, it seems like we are getting disproportionately hit hard and so I'm excited to have two individuals with us today that will speak in regard to the COVID-19 vaccine because I personally feel we all have to get vaccinated as soon as possible. This is the only way we're going to be able to beat this coronavirus in our communities as well as in our state and as on a national level. And I'll tell you, I, I, want, to, I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to live life like before. And I know that's going to take some time and we, we have a battle in front of us, but we, we have a weapon and that is the COVID-19 vaccine. So today I want to welcome to Mi Gente On Air, Dr. Brenda Coughlin, who is the president and CEO of the Great Lakes Bay Health Centers, as well as Angela Williams, who also works for the Great Lakes Bay Health Centers as the RN Director of Special Projects. Ladies, welcome to Mi Gente on Air. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you, being Larry. with we me. Really appreciate, we really appreciate the opportunity to work with you to help protect our community. Yes, yes, it's, it's so important. I, w- I want to start out by first, you know, there, there's so much uh, misinformation out there sometimes, maybe not misinformation, but the way it is perceived by uh, individuals. So I want to ask basic questions here. First of all, why is it so important to receive the COVID-19 vaccine, you know, especially during this pandemic? So COVID-19 or another name for it is coronavirus disease 2019. They're the same thing. It's a virus that has infected 8% of the population of Saginaw County in the last 12 months. And 3%, 3 out of 100 people getting the infection have died. As you said, I'm sorry for your loss. We all have lost people to COVID and it hurts. It is heavy on our hearts. Yes, it does. So in Saginaw, so in Saginaw County, two out of every 1,000 residents have died from coronavirus in this last year. It's critically important that we consider taking this vaccine, which is life-saving. There are two vaccines currently available in the United States. There's a Pfizer vaccine and a Moderna vaccine. Those are the producers of the vaccine. Both vaccines, after you receive two shots, are 95% effective at preventing symptomatic COVID-19 disease. So of the 70, for an example, of the 75,000 people that were vaccinated in the early clinical trials, none of them, not one of them died. If those people had, had experienced out of 75,000 people in the um, pandemic without the vaccine, 150 would have died 
bottom line, these vaccines save lives, and we need to all consider taking them to save our lives and to protect our families. Yeah, okay, so 75,000 people were given the vaccine in test trials, and not one died, correct? From from the coronavirus, correct. From the coronavirus, yes. That's good. That's great news. And, and, and I think some listeners in my audience, they may think, okay, well, so I'm, I'm given the vaccine. Can it give me coronavirus or COVID-19? What would you say? No, to the, vac- the vaccine cannot give you coronavirus. Both of these vaccines that are available contain only instructions to make some, uh, a few of the proteins in the coronavirus virus. So what happens is when you get the vaccine, your body learns how to kill the proteins in the virus, but it does not contain the virus, the part that causes replication. So there is no way to get coronavirus from these vaccinations. Okay. So like a lot of people, they don't understand uh, microbiology or um, how that actually works in the body. When you say um, that it's going to build up, uh, say, like uh, antibodies to COVID-19, that's what I'm hearing. Can you explain to me in a little bit more simpler terms what it actually is doing when you are receiving that vaccine in your body? Yes. So, for instance, if you took an object, I'm trying to think of something that, so if you took, like, for instance, a chocolate chip cookie, right? Mm -hmm. It has chocolate chips and it has dough. So if we, the coronavirus vaccine gives you the chocolate chip, so your body says, oh, chocolate chips aren't good, that's not part of me, I'm going to learn how to get rid of those. So next time you get exposed to a chocolate chip, your body would kill it. But we didn't give you the rest of the cookie, so it's not a whole cookie. You can't do what the cookie would normally have done. You just got a piece of it. So that's what the vaccine does. It teaches our bodies to fight off a piece of the virus. And therefore killing it and not, or not, not allowing it to grow and replicate within your body. Exactly. So when your body sees the whole virus, it goes, oh, this piece isn't part of me and kills the whole thing. Yes, yes. Let me ask you this. Now, you know, we have uh, those, I think, 60 and over have been told to get the flu virus as well, the flu vaccine that has been going uh, on for a number of years. And I I personally, I've gotten it ever since I turned 50. Should people get that test? Should they get still get the tests for the COVID? And should they be taking the flu vaccine if they're getting the COVID vaccine? Absolutely. So the flu vaccine is a vaccine we've had with us for a long time. Mm -hmm. And flu is another virus that attacks lungs and can be um, deadly to people. And if it gets combined with coronavirus, specific, particularly dangerous. So every year, the flu in the United States kills tens of thousands of people. Getting that vaccine will protect you and your family from the flu and help to decrease the number of people going to doctors and hospitals so there are more resources left to be able to combat COVID. Um, The question about getting tested, if you are exposed to COVID or if you have symptoms, the vaccines are not 100% effective. They're 95% effective to tell your body how to kill the virus. So you need to get tested if you got exposed or if you have symptoms. That knowledge, knowing whether you have COVID or not, allows you to prevent giving it to people that you love and prevent them from getting sick. Yes, yes. Okay. So I'm glad I've got my flu vaccine for this season. And as soon as I can, I definitely want to get that COVID-19 vaccine. Vaccine. Who, who should get the COVID vaccine and who should not? 
So virtually everyone should consider getting the coronavirus vaccine when it's your turn. Um, Right now, the priority groups in Saginaw County are people who are older than 64 years old and those working in healthcare, schools, nursing homes, corrections, group homes, adult foster care, or homeless shelters. Um, we're all eligible for the vaccine now, and you need to contact the health department. There's, If you go to the health de- Saginaw County Health Department website, mm-hmm. you can sign up on their list for the vaccine. If you don't have access to the web, the website is the best way to do it. But if you don't have access to that, you can call Commission on Aging at 989-797-6880, and they will help you register, or even 211 can help you register. But you definitely want to get your spot in line reserved. Yeah, I, think- I, I, I excuse me, I, I just had um, registered my uh, older brother as well as an aunt um, in they told me at the time uh, during the registration that, you know, there was a backlog of about 15,000 and I was surprised about that, but I understand that, um, you know, there's, there's a waiting list and um, it's, it's going to take time, but I think there's a lot of positives coming out of Washington DC in terms of the new direction that our president is taking in regard to these vaccines and um, the ordering of millions of, of, of vaccines for the United States. Of those people, who should not get a vaccine? Um, so if you have had a significant reaction, allergic reaction to a vaccine in the past, you need to talk to your um, doctor or, uh, you know, or the place you're getting them talking about the vaccination to make sure. Because if you've had a severe allergic reaction to a vaccine, you should not be getting it. If you have other allergies, you probably can, but you need to inform whoever's giving you the vaccine of your allergies so you can look together at the ingredients and make 100% sure that you are not going to be exposed to something dangerous for you. Now, after you get a vaccine, you have to be observed for 15 minutes to make sure that you don't have an allergic reaction immediately, and um, people who are higher risk for that will be observed for 30 minutes. Oh, okay. Okay. So like when, when we're talking about an allergic reaction, we're talking uh, possibly fever as well as um, other symptoms. But if you're talking about actually pain in the arm from actually the physical part of getting a vaccine, that's not really an allergic reaction. That's just something that we can expect whenever we do get any type of vaccine, like when we were children, right? You're absolutely right, Larry. There are a lot of effects of a vaccine that are expected and normal. And honestly, not only, I mean, your arm should be sore after we stick a needle in it. If it isn't, I'm a little worried about that. But but secondly, those other symptoms you were talking about, that is actually your body learning to fight off disease. So fever, sore arm, muscle aches, all of that is expected after or can occur about 10% of the time after a vaccine. You might feel some muscle aches, not feel entirely well because your body is building up an immune response. It's actually a good sign when you do that because it means it's working and your body's getting ready to fight it off. Yeah. And those effects, those those side effects that you get from a vaccine only last 24 to 48 hours. They don't stay with you long term. Now, the things that are allergic reactions that you need to not get the vaccine for are if you've had a vaccine and you've gotten hives or trouble breathing, shortness of breath, those are those are allergic reactions that you do not want to get the vaccine for. Okay, D- Dr. Coglins, I need you to say that again, but say it slower because it came off like you, uh, about being high. And I think you meant hives. Hives. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, Larry. I apologize. Yes. So if you got hives after you received the vaccine, you should not get 
the coronavirus vaccine. Or if you had trouble breathing, you your throat closed up, you had to use epinephrine, you had to go to the hospital for that, don't get this vaccine. Yeah, so those are the more severe um, allergic reactions that we're talking about as opposed to just uh, getting the hurt in the arm or even a fever because like you said that means that your body's actually working in uh, producing antibodies to uh, the vaccine so um, I think that's part of the clarity that I the listening audience wonders about and needs to know and understand uh, because I know that I had a good friend of mine who she said, you know, that she's had allergic reactions in the past. And so um, she's probably not a candidate for this. But if that reaction is simply just the, the, the hurting in the arm or the feverish or just not feeling good for up to uh, 24 to 48 hours, that's the vaccine working, correct? You're 100 percent right. And I do want to say that um, after. So there are two shots in the series. The first shot only gives you 50 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, product protection. The second shot gets you to 95%. The second shot has to be taken for Pfizer 21 days after the first, and for Moderna, it's 28 days after the first shot. And when you get your shot, you will be given a card that says the date you got it and the date the next one is due. But I- it's important to remember, I think, that you may not feel great for a day or two after that shot, and that's only you know 2% feel bad and 10% might feel a little bad, but um, but that is versus a two in a thousand chance of dying. You got to consider the trade off. Yeah, yeah, and and you said something key there: protection, protection to the coronavirus is what this vaccine is for, so that you can protect yourself as well as others in your community, uh, your loved ones, your friends, and so that we can beat this virus. You know, it's it's a it's a war. You know, it's uh, it's yes. a war that we are experiencing. That we've been fighting for 11 months now, 11 to 12 months, almost a year. And and we've got to take this step in order to combat it, you know, and to, to see our lives come back to some type of normalcy. So I'm encouraging everyone to get this vaccine. Yeah. But tell me, what what are you finding, Dr. Coughlin? What are you finding? And Angela, you can uh, come in on this if you, if you like. Um, why sure. are people unwilling to take this COVID vaccine? I can okay, answer that can question clarify- for you, Larry. Go, go ahead, Dr. Coughlin, clarify. I just need to, I just want to make it entirely clear from what I just said. When I say the two to th- the one to two days of not feeling well versus two in a thousand of dying, the two in a thousand of dying is from coronavirus, not the vaccine. I want to make that really clear. Vaccine does not kill people. Yes. does good, not give you coronavirus. Good, good point, Sorry. Good point. Go ahead, Angela. No, I was going to say, Larry, as a person of color, I'm well aware of the historical health policies and experiments that have occurred within the vulnerable black and brown communities throughout the years. And so with this history, there's been a lot of mistrust about COVID vaccine, as well as the mixed messaging from social media. And so it's really important to just understand, as Dr. Coughlin already alluded to, that there's an alarming rate of racial and ethnic disparities around COVID cases and deaths, especially with the Hispanic community as well as black community. Yes. So Hispanics make up 5% of Michigan population, but account for 8% of the COVID cases. So with Great Lakes and our community partnerships, we feel like, feel like it's very important to provide culturally appropriate health education messaging specifically to our Hispanic and black communities to help encourage people get, to get tested. And so we do this through media outlets and partnerships such as yours, 
and making as many efforts as possible to educate our community so that they get credible information. So I adapted this, I think, for Dr. Fauci. Listen to the science and not the social media is what we have to do. Yeah, because everybody on social media, it seems, has an opinion about this um, and have some have become doctors overnight. And I think it's really important that, um, you know, we do follow the science. We do follow Dr. Fauci, even though he got a bad rap there in the last administration. I think that he has had a history of years of of working uh, in the vaccine community, if you will. And I think it's really important that on a show like Mi Gente on Air, that we are telling the community about the COVID vaccine more with more clarity, and we're trying, and, and we get that message out stronger, stronger through our publications, our radio, our television. And I know that the Saginaw Health Department has done a great job from what I have seen in bringing that knowledge uh, to the forefront. And it's a, it's a task. It's a task for everybody out in our nation because we, as you know, have not experienced a pandemic at this level in over 100 years. And I really want to applaud you ladies for being involved in trying to get this message out. And I, I want to expand on the idea of um, the vaccine Tell me, is it readily available right now in our community and at the Great Lakes Bay Health Centers? Well, I think all of us have seen on the news, Larry, that there's not enough vaccine to go around to everyone who wants it right now. Mm-hmm. So it is not readily available. However, there is vaccine that are, that comes to our community. It comes to either the hospitals or the health department Um Almost every week, not every week, sometimes we don't get it, but there's some that comes, and Michigan has gotten a larger allocation of vaccines. It's been increased just this week, I believe. So there's hope for more vaccines coming soon. Um, The really important thing is people who are, first of all, they're prioritizing people who are 80 and over, the health department is. So if you go to that website and sign up, they're going to do some mass vaccination clinics for people who fit in those high-risk groups, the 80 and over soon so get your name on that list it'll get your age and then when that vaccine clinic is happening near where you live you should be getting a call that gets you signed up for a spot in that clinic so that's very important also sign up if you're 65 or over because that will that group will be the next group that gets called okay so critically important yes so does everybody hear that anybody who is 80 years old should be signed up to get this vaccine if you haven't gotten it already and we we need to talk about that for even the 65 year old and over um sometimes you know our our elderly they they're not so savvy uh on today's technology on websites or uh, even just picking up on a picking up a phone and calling on this and they really need uh somebody to be that person that's going to look out for them and get that text message when that vaccine is available. So I want to put that out there um, and make sure that my listening audience listens to that. If you're 80 or over, get that vaccine, your priority first, and then 65 and older, get on that. Make sure you get on that list so that you can get vaccinated as soon as those vaccines come in. Correct? Absolutely. And you are 100% right. Yeah. Okay. Anyone so, can sign you up. It doesn't have to be you who does it. It can be your nephew, your son, your whoever. Anyone can sign you up. Yes, and, and I wanted the, the, I wanted to add something to that, Larry. Go ahead. That if they're if if they're a veteran, they can call the VA hospital, and 
The family caregiver can also receive their vaccine when they take the veteran to the hospital for a vaccine. So if we have people in the community who receive services at the VA hospital, they need to call and get their names on the list to schedule an appointment and their significant other should be able to qualify to receive their vaccine at that same time. Wow. Wow. So that that's a that's some good news there that I didn't know about. That's that's excellent news. So um, if you're a veteran, that what uh, Angela is saying is that you as a spouse could also get a vaccine at that time. Correct? Yes. <laughs> or, or is it just that it, that they can take them to get their vaccine at the veterans hospital, but and, but it's only for the the actual veteran. I need that clarification there. Correct. Family care, family caregivers are supposed to be able to receive that vaccine at the same time. Wow, that's a, that is awesome. That is awesome. That's great news. I'm glad you told you. I'm glad you told me that. You know, everybody is going to ask, and this may be a question um, for some people today. Is there a cost to get this vaccine? Um, first, the vaccine is free. The United States paid for it. It's free. No one should be charging you for the vaccine. If someone is asking you to pay for it, it's probably a scam. If they call you and say, "For this much money, I can get you signed up," don't do it. Right. You shouldn't have to pay for it. The second piece that you need to know is if you have insurance, your insurance will be billed for the injection fee for the vaccine. So it's not the cost of the vaccine, but the cost of getting you the vaccine. But it will only be your insurance that um, is billed. So if you don't have insurance, you won't be billed for for that cost. And you should not you will not receive a bill for that. That is coming through the insurance. And I also think it's important to mention that you don't need to be a citizen to be eligible for a COVID vaccine. Yes, that, that is very important. So I, I really hope that my listening audience will relay this information to anybody who is a Spanish speaker only. You do not have to be a citizen in order to get the vaccine. And that's really important, especially within our migrant uh, communities that are coming this spring to the area. And it's it's still happening do you see that there are, are less people coming, uh, migrating to the area because of the COVID pandemic? Well, this you, last year, this last year has been kind of a, it's been a very interesting year for migration because of because of COVID. And our um, our migrant population last year really didn't understand, um, didn't have a lot of education about that. We spent a lot of the summer testing and um, informing our migrant population about what COVID is and how it works and what they need to do to protect themselves. So the hope is that this year we'll be prepared um, to, to better take care of our migrant population. And honestly, they are, they are first line essential, they're essential workers in the, not the category that we're in today vaccinating, but perhaps by May, June, we'll be able to vaccinate them also. And that next category is really important for everyone to realize too. After we complete the vaccinations for the 65 and up, which we're hoping to have done by April, then um, April, May, then we'll start vaccinating the um, first line essential workers and those people who are 16 to 64 with a coexisting um, medical problem like diabetes or hypertension or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you need to be, if that includes you, keep your ears open because there's a day where we need you to sign up for your shot too. Yes, yes, definitely. And, and tell me, Dr. Coughlin, where 
where, if anybody wants information today within the Hispanic community, and this can be for everybody, but of course, this is um, geared toward the Hispanic community, this show, you know, where, where can they get more information if they're still a little bit hesitant? Where would you suggest that they actually go to to get more information? And, and who is working to behind the scenes to make sure that even Spanish speakers are getting information? Absolutely. Good question. So the, the Saginaw County Health Department website has a lot of vaccine information, a lot of information about COVID in general. So does the state site. And I heard that there was a group working to translate all of that into Spanish, but I haven't looked at the state website to see if that is done yet. Do you know, Angela? I don't know about the state, but I also would recommend CDC because they do have uh, fact sheets that are available in Spanish and English, and we are working towards uh, getting some more Spanish information shared with you, Larry, mm -hmm. to disseminate in the public. Yeah, and I know that Mi Gente magazine uh, has been running advertisements in Spanish in regard to COVID-19. So that's a plus, and that's coming um, from the Michigan Health Department uh, in Lansing. So there is that effort. Um, is there a local effort, would you say, Angela, that um, Hispanic leaders are getting involved with to try to pass on the message to get this vaccine? Certainly. We have been so fortunate to work with the Hispanic leaders since June of 2020, and we have worked in community partnership and have been very successful in creating our COVID pop-up testing sites throughout the summer and early fall. And we have continued on this journey together to make as many efforts as possible to increase the vaccine confidence and awareness in reference to administration of the vaccine and other education that we know might be missed if people don't have access to. So we strategize together in terms of trying to identify the pockets of our community where we can get the proper messaging um, conveyed to the community. And something that I read about last week that I think is impactful, this little note that says it's critical to understand that vaccines don't prevent disease and save lives. Getting people vaccinated prevents disease and saves lives. And so that's our goal at Great Lakes Bay Health Centers is to work collaboratively with communities of color so that our messages are trusted by our community to alleviate um, the increase of coronavirus because I want to go back to being normal. I want yeah. some type of normalcy in my life. I got my second dose of COVID today. Right. I had minimal side effects a month ago with Moderna. And today I just feel a little queasy, but that's normal for me. But other than that, you know, we have to just, again, trust the science, but we're doing this for the sake of ourselves as well as protecting our loved ones and protecting the community. Yes, yes, and, and it's so it's just so important in this time. And, you know, we go through life and you know, we're, we're hit with all kinds of things happening every day, but 
um, you know, and the backdrop of all the political that's been going on in, in the election. And, and, you know, here we've been in this pandemic for 11 months. And I think it's really important that sometimes the messaging gets lost because of all the, all the everyday uh, happenings. And we have to make sure we're on top of this to get that information out, whether it's, you know, every day or if it's, you know, a couple times during the week, because there are people I'm telling you with my experience and what I have seen in the last two months, there are people who are just not willing to get the vaccine because what I feel is misinformation. And so um, I, I really applaud you, ladies. I thank you for taking the time here for being with me and making sure that we we relay that message to our community. Is there anything that you would like to wrap up in regard to COVID-19? I would, I would like just to like to say... Go ahead. <laughs> Go, Angela. Go ahead, Dr. Cook. No, I was going to say, I just thank you for the opportunity to work collaboratively. And the more people that we can involve in um, embarking on this, commission, this mission together, then we would um we will be i'm confident that we're going to be very successful in increasing the percentage of people who are vaccinated in our own community so thank you for this opportunity again thank you so much dr coglin you can wrap it up thank you larry um i agree with angela thank you so much for this opportunity to work with you and just remember that these these vaccines are a great tool to help us fight coronavirus. It takes two weeks after your last vaccine for your immunity to be built up. So you still need to be careful. And even after you've been vaccinated, all of us need to keep doing the things we've been doing now. This community, Saginaw County, has been fairly successful in um, keeping the coronavirus numbers down in our Hispanic population. Um, but you need to keep doing the things we're doing. Wearing a mask, yes. keep your watch your distance. You know, we need to keep we need to keep doing all of those things that will keep us safe and our loved ones safe. Yes, yes. So thank you, Dr. Coglin. Thank you, Angela. Uh, thank you, Great Lakes Bay Health Centers for being with us and passing on that information that is so vital for our community. We'll be right back. More on Mi Gente On Air. This is Mi Gente On Air on WSGW. You're listening to Mi Gente On Air on WSGW. Welcome back. Welcome back, Mi Gente. Thank you for being with us this evening. And, you know, we just got done talking about uh, the COVID vaccine, which is kind of a somber somber topic. And um, the information that was presented was very important to our community. But now we're going to talk about something a little bit more exciting, and that's baseball, Latino baseball contributions, if you will. You know, for nearly a century, baseball has been a crucial social and cultural force in the Latino communities across the United States. We know this. And for just as long, Latino baseball players have had a huge impact on that game. And we're celebrating this month the history along with the Smithsonian Institute Traveling Exhibits and the Castle Museum, as they present Playball in the Barrios and in the Big Leagues, in Los Barrios y las Grandes Ligas, a bilingual journey into the heart of American baseball. And I am so excited about this because it's a wonderful exhibit. And today I have the president and CEO of the Castle Museum, Mr. Jonathan Webb. Welcome to Mi Gente on Air, Jonathan. How are you? 
Uh, hi, Larry. It's it's a pleasure to be here and an honor. Uh, really excited to uh, have an opportunity to, to be on your show today and, and kind of share with you a little bit of information about this exhibit. And I know uh, you, you're quite familiar with it uh, already, Larry, uh, being a, a board member here at the Castle Museum. Uh, we so appreciate all of your contributions. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, you really helped us. You opened some doors for us with this exhibit, um, especially in relation to working with the Detroit Tiger Organization and, and some local folks here that provided a lot of information. So thank you. um, you're a big part of this, too. Thank you. Thank so, you so much for yeah. saying that. Jonathan, I, I want to start out, first of all, by uh, letting our listeners know uh, exactly who you are and your background um, with the Castle Museum, because sometimes that just kind of gets lost in the shuffle, and I want them to understand who they're actually listening to. Sure. Um, you know, I, I guess um, I'm, I'm a person who, who has always had uh, a love for history, uh, I actually grew up in Northwest Ohio, not here in the Saginaw area, uh, but I moved here more than 25 years ago. And, uh, you know, for a short time, my wife and I and our family, we, we lived, well, we've lived in Frankenmuth since we, we moved to this area, but we had uh, retail shops and things like that. And in the early 2000s, um, the opening came about for the position of the executive director at the Frankenmuth Historical Association. And uh, that just was a lifelong passion of mine. And I applied for that position and, and got it and uh, really, really enjoyed it. And as part of that position, I ended up serving on the board of directors here at the Castle Museum for a while. And you and I served on that board together. And when the last director here at the Castle Museum uh, decided he was going to retire, Ken Santa, um, a board member asked me if I would be interested in, in taking that position because I was already doing that at a smaller, you know, history museum uh, in the area, no less. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about it. I, I honestly wasn't looking for a new job at the time, but it made sense for me, and it was a new challenge, and it was a much bigger role and, um, you know, larger facility and, and more exhibits and just a lot of opportunities as well as, as challenges. And, uh, and I, so I thought about it and talked it over with my family and uh, decided to make the jump, uh, and they selected me to be uh, the new president and CEO here. And that was about four years ago. And uh, I really enjoyed my time here at the Castle Museum. It's an amazing, amazing organization and, and building. And um, so, I mean, I guess that's a little bit of a rough sketch for who I am. So an Ohio boy who, who moved north and, uh, and got involved in history. How about that? <laughs> Isn't that something? And, and what, what a building you've moved to, right? The Castle yeah. Museum. I mean, that's just, it's such a beautiful historical place here in the downtown Saginaw area. Can you tell me how, because I know that we periodically have gotten Smithsonian exhibits, the traveling exhibits to the Castle Museum. Can you tell me sure. a little bit about how that actually came about this time around? Well, yeah, and, and the story actually goes back um, quite a while before I was here. Um, there were a group of, of board members and the director at the time uh, that decided they wanted to be, they wanted to make sure that this facility was capable of hosting a Smithsonian-level exhibit. And so they took um, what we now call Centennial Hall, and they remodeled and, and, and upgraded the, the heating and, and cooling elements and, and made sure that it, we could moderate uh, humidity levels. Um, we added lighting grids and, and all these different things that were requirements uh, in order to host certain types of um, exhibits and security and things like that. And uh, so they, they kind of laid that groundwork. They, they made it possible for us 
you know, to be able to host these exhibits down the road. Um, and then what, what's happened more recently is the, is the Smithsonian has started to this program that they call their SITES program, S-I-T-E-S, Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service. And so what these are are, are, are exhibits that are specially made um, to be able to be packed up and shipped around the country. Uh, they're designed for smaller museums of our size that might not have the, the big city you know, museum budget of you know, the millions of dollars and things like that. So these are designed for, for the smaller guy to have an opportunity to bring a top-level exhibit to their town or city and, and share that with their community. And so we have taken advantage of that. Uh, we've actually hosted twice, uh, two different exhibits from the Smithsonian in the last year. Uh, we had one uh, that, that opened shortly before the pandemic shutdown happened in 2020. And so, uh, unfortunately, a, for a large part of that exhibit run, we were unable to have the museum open. Uh, but that was quite fascinating as well, and that was called The Way We Worked. And it, oh, yes. You know, it looked yes. at labor and, and work and how that's you know, shaped um, different cultures in the United States and how that's become so interwoven in our self-worth and all these different aspects. And that's the fascinating thing about these Smithsonian exhibits is they just look at every subject from so many different angles and maybe angles you never thought about and, and present, um, you know, a myriad of, of views and, 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 and bring the subject home in a way that maybe you'd never thought of it before. And yeah. I think people are going to find when they come and check out Play Ball that it's the same exact thing. There's so many interesting little uh, nuggets of information in this. And, you know, one of the amazing things, the most amazing things about this exhibit, though, Larry, and one of the things we're most proud of here is that this is the first museum in the world that this exhibit is being shown at. So this is brand new from the Smithsonian, and we were able to secure it um, as the opening venue, opening day, if you will, for this exhibit uh, right here in Saginaw, Michigan. So we're really yeah. proud of that. Yeah, and kudos to the Saginaw uh, County Historical Society and the Casa Museum for uh, being that museum that can actually do that. And I, and I have to uh, circle back right real quick about uh, the traveling exhibits uh, because I remember sure. being – uh, um, quite young in 2005, and Judge Crane, I sat down with Judge Crane, who is also a board member, uh, Bill Crane yep. is his name, and he was really adamant about the mm -hmm. idea of having these Smithsonian traveling exhibits, and he and his wife would actually travel to Washington, D.C. to look at um, the presentation of what exhibits were available, and he was adamant about bringing that to the Saginaw Castle Museum. So I want to give him a shout-out because I think it's really important. And way back about in 2010, we had the Bracero uh, exhibit that gave uh, – celebration and recognition to the Bracero program, which was a program where uh, migrant workers were coming from Mexico during the wars uh, when there was a scarcity of uh, men working, and they were actually uh, brought in trucks, loads to uh, our area, actually, even as throughout the country as well. And um, it was a beautiful exhibit that we localized as well uh, with our local components of people uh, that worked the fields in our area that went on to be successful business owners. So kudos to uh, the Smithsonian. I love having them here. And again, I want to make sure that Bill Crane gets that recognition. He's so important on our board. And I think Bill Crane, correct me if I'm wrong, John, Bill Crane and uh, Judge Fred Borchard are the senior members of our board now. And I think I'm in third place <laughs> out of a board of 15, right? 
I, I think that's probably right, Larry. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh, in, and, and certainly the, you, you three have been, um, have, have been through a lot with this museum and, uh, you know, including most recently, you know, our most recent challenge, which was just getting the millage passed this past summer. Yes. And, uh, so much appreciate your support for that and your help, um, getting the word out, um, and, and the use of Mejente magazine, um, to help us, you know, uh, promote the passage of that millage. And, and, you know, we did it in resounding fashion, uh, with, with tremendous support throughout the entire county, which we're so pleased with um, and, and really appreciative of. And, you know, and we're trying to, um, to say thank you to, and to make sure that we recognize all elements of county, whether you're in the city of Saginaw or you're far away in Oakley um, or whether you're from, you know, whatever community you're from, whether it be, you know, geographically, racially, whatever, that we're making sure that we're telling your story um, and how it fits into this county because we have to make sure that we recognize that every story is different. And, and that's the beauty, again, of, of an exhibit like this. Um, everybody loves baseball. Everybody knows baseball. But this is just a whole different look at the game of baseball that we're going to, you know, that we're showing right now. So, yes, yes. Much appreciated. Can, can you tell me, John, um, why is it today so important um, to celebrate Latinos in baseball? I, I'm, I'm asking that, that question. I have my answers, but I want to hear what you have to say. Well, and I'm, and I'm curious to see what, you, what, what your answer is too, Larry. Um, I, I think kind of literally very, very much what I just said. Um, I think everybody recognizes that baseball is an important part of the history of sports in the United States, okay? And, you know, lo- known for the longest time as America's game. Um, but it turns out, uh, you know, it, it's been played in, in, in Latin America, in, in, in the Caribbean, for almost as long as it was played in the United States. Like back to the 1880s, the game was played, you know, right. in Central and South America. And so I don't think a lot of people realize that, how ingrained it is um, in Latino culture. And then you start looking at um, the impact um, of, you know, all the way up through impact of players today. You know, a huge percentage of Major League Baseball players currently, you know, hail from Latino countries. Yes. And so I think we have to, to recognize the, the, the um, impact that they're having on the game right now. Uh, but then I think there's all kinds of other things that are in between. You know, that's the that's the top, the pinnacle of the game is you know Major League Baseball. But all kinds of levels in between. Um, just talking about how it helps um, it helps Latino communities assimilate uh, into a more you know American culture, if you will, and how it also provided a point of pride for whether it was you know if it was a Latino-based team that was very successful and you know competed against uh, everyone in their area or whether it was, um, you know, wearing a, a uniform that was sponsored by a Latino business. Um, there was just so much pride that was involved in that. And, you know, I think that's where I see the key, uh, some of the key things. And I guess also just making sure, again, that, as I said before, we understand that every community and every individual has a story about why baseball is important to them. And if we don't listen to all the stories uh, then we're missing out. You know, yes. if we only listen to the stories that are told by the people that look and sound just like me, then we're missing a huge part of the story. So, you know, this is just, I think, recognition um, of what has been there already for the longest time, which is significant contributions to the game from the Latino community at the local level. And obviously on a more um, 
visible scale, you know, all the way up to the Major League Baseball level. That's yes. my thought, I guess. Yes, you know, so, and nicely how said. About, what's yours, Larry? Well, you know, I, I've, I've worked with uh, the Detroit Tigers, like you said, um, since 2008 in putting on their uh, Fiesta Tigres. And before the pandemic, um, it was it's such a huge, mm-hmm. important uh, day in baseball uh, during the during the summertime for Latinos, and you know a lot of our Latinos in our Hispanic uh, and and Hispanics in our community they go to the Detroit Tigers specifically for this day because there's such a celebration of the contributions, and you know to make sure that we honor those names such as Miguel Cabrera and uh, Nick Castellanos and. Jose Iglesias, J.D. Martinez, Victor Martinez, um, Maglio Ordonez. My God, how how many of us can remember in 2006 when he actually right. threw that <laughs> threw his fist in the, the air and run. propelled us into the World <laughs> Series? I mean, baseball changed after that, and unfortunately, you know, in 2012 right. we did go to the the World Series again. But um, I I can't. I'd be really sad to not uh, celebrate that contribution because Mags was my favorite player for a number of years. I was sad to see him go, but uh, one of my greatest moments when, uh, as a publisher of Mijente, was when Maglio Ardonias uh, retired and standing on that field right behind him while uh, the national anthem played and um, the great the great um, Al Kaline was standing right next to him. I mean, that that was such a moment because my mother, that Al Kaline was her favorite player, my favorite player, who was Miguel Ordonez. Right. And um, it just it just was a, a great moment. And Lat- Latinos in baseball, I mean, it means so much to our community, and it goes way back in our community in uh, in Saginaw. So I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the, the local component in regard to this Smithsonian exhibit. Sure. And what we mean by local components yeah. to my audience is that we try to incorporate uh, Saginaw people, local people, and their contributions to the exhibit that is, um, in this case, Latinos in Baseball. So it's really important to, to note that Francisco Diaz, as well as um, Jose Luna, were very instrumental in bringing baseball to the Mexican community. And Today, and I don't know, John, if you if you had had a chance to talk with Joaquin Diaz, who was the son of Francisco Diaz, but Joaquin has such a story in regard to Latinos back in the 40s and 50s, and he's 80 years old now, but he remembers vividly about uh, Luna's baseball field. Did he tell you anything about that? Have you had a chance to talk with him? I, I have not yet, um, and I'm hoping actually, um, I, I'm hoping that um, we'll be able to interview him. We're doing a series of interviews on our Facebook page live on Tuesdays, which you are going to participate in here in a couple of weeks, Larry. Yep. Um, and I hope to be able to get him, uh, it's Joaquin, right, we said, mm-hmm. um, to to be a guest on the show as well. We actually had our first one yesterday, and it was fabulous. Yes, um, yes, Carlos Guillen, had, I saw uh, that. <laughs> Carlos Guillen uh, from the Detroit Tigers, and it's not... Yeah, not the baseball not the, player. And, and the confusion is, and he laughs about this all the time. It's not the baseball player, Carlos Guillen, right? And everybody assumes it is. It's not. He's actually much younger, um, and he is their bilingual media relations uh, coordinator. Okay, which is um, basically he handles uh, his job is actually multifaceted. He he's he's part journalist. He's part translator. He's part I think almost. Um, uh, social support network uh, kind of individual. So he's helping all these players 
coming from Latino countries that, that are having language barrier problems and just really don't understand the culture and maybe coming from a, a very, very different background, uh, rural, potentially very poor. Uh, and he's helping all these guys, um, you know, with the day-to-day things that they have to be able to do in order yes. to function as Major League Baseball players. And he said it's funny because it's everything from, you know, major issues to he gets a phone call at, at 11 o'clock at night and they're standing in line at the fast food place and they say, I want to order a hamburger, but I don't know how. Yeah. And then they, you know, and then he tells them what to say on the phone. And so it was really a fascinating interview. Um, and it is available on our Facebook site for the Castle Museum. If anybody wants to take a look at it from yesterday, it was really, it was really a, a fun interview. Well, I, I really look forward but, to, uh, yeah, so to I mean, you I, I didn't mean to Jack. get away from your topic talking about the local mm-hmm. component. Right. Yeah. I, and I look forward to you interviewing yeah, yeah. Joaquin. Um, uh, we call so, him, we um, actually call him Jack. Look, Jack, uh, Jack Diaz, um, and some call him okay, Joaquin, okay. but gotcha. um, I look forward to that interview, definitely. But Jack will tell you qu- quite a story in regard right. to his father and, and Joe Luna and the Luna baseball field because it was put in place so that um, the Mexican baseball players in the 40s and 50s were able to play ball when they were not allowed at the um, Hoyt Park in those days. But eventually, because right. of their efforts, they were actually allowed to play in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And there were some great, great uh, baseball players as well as uh, team names, and I'm just going to go through some of those: the the Gaitos and the the Aztecas and La Favoritas. These are these were um, baseball teams that were sponsored by, uh, like say, La Favorita uh, grocery store, and so they took on their names: Los Aces, Los Amigos, the pa- the right. Cactus Bar team, Chapas Grocery uh, Sunburst team, which was a women's league. And so there's a whole bunch of history there. And, and John, I so much want to keep talking about this. We should have did an hour show on this because there's so much to talk about. But we're at the end of the show already almost. But I just want to <laughs> give you the opportunity to tell people uh, oh, man. Okay. what, what you, the, your final thoughts on the exhibit and the connection um, with the his, uh, Smithsonian exhibit. What are your final thoughts, John? Sure. Thank, thanks very much, Larry, and thanks again for, for letting me come on and talk about this. Really appreciate it. And again, I, and I appreciate so much the connections you helped us make with the Detroit Tigers. Um, I didn't really even get a chance to touch on that, but they are part of this exhibit as well and looking to contribute more as we go. Um, and so just again, thank you for that. But, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the residents of Saginaw County to see the world debut of a Smithsonian exhibit right here in their hometown. And to top it all off, um, and we've been doing this really since we, we the COVID um, situation has occurred. We're not even charging admission right now to get into the museum. So it's free to get in um, for everyone. And we welcome everyone to come down and check this out. Um, you can find out more information about our hours and all that kind of stuff on our website, which is castlemuseum.org. For daily updates on things that are going on um, and posts about the exhibit and baseball-related things in the county, you can always go to our Facebook site. Um, but we really appreciate, again, the opportunity to tell this story. Uh, the Latino community here in, in Saginaw is a huge part of this community, and we want to recognize that and celebrate that. So thank you again very much, Larry. Yes, and thank it. you. Thank you, Jonathan, for being with me today, and thank you for bringing the, that gorgeous, gorgeous exhibit. you got to go see it, everybody. Please make time. It is uh, going to be exhibiting at the Castle Museum until April 18th of this year, and I know the pandemic is still with us, but make that time. Make that time to take your family and see the contributions of Latinos in baseball. So thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for allowing me to come into your homes and hearing uh, me talk on Mi Gente on Air. Thank you so much. See you next week.